We are now in the sixth week of our 10-week series in Philippians. Uh, And just as a a way of recap, um, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And the the, the thrust of the letter can be summarized in chapter 1, verse 6. The God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the big idea that Paul's unpacking throughout the letter. And this theme comes to the forefront in our text today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul wants to talk about how the God who began a good work and the God who will bring that work to completion is bringing that work about in our lives here and now. This is not just about something God does one time and then we wait for something to change, Paul says. God is in the process of making all things new in our lives and through our lives. And this, in my opinion, is a great uh, text for an ordination service. Uh, So let me say by way of disclaimer, this will be a normal sermon in the sense that I will be talking to you uh, but there will also be moments where I will talk directly to Billy. Um, and it, it's, it's really because I like Billy. This, this is a, um, a Facebook post from me on May 12th. I thought I would read to you. Ten reasons why I love Billy Gaines. Number one, he's awesome. Number two, his beard is awesome. Number three, he can bench press me and Michael Chase at the same time. Quite the feat. Number four, he dresses neatly. Number five, he's going to plant a really neat church in Spokane, Washington. Number six, He's like a bearded Beyonce. I don't know that one. Uh, Number seven, he's more than six feet tall. It's true. Number eight, he likes the Book of Common Prayer. Number nine, he has beautiful blue eyes and dark brown hair. Number 10, he is good at counting. And number 11, he talks awesome. Clearly, my Facebook was hacked by one Billy Gaines. Uh, And (laughs) keeping that in mind, it it seems Billy is desperate for some encouragement. So today, (laughs) I hope through this sermon to encourage him. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, and if you, um, you're still figuring out this whole Jesus thing, is Jesus really who he said he was? Uh, I want to just give you a heads up. This, this sermon is going to be a bit more of a family sermon uh, directed towards people who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus and are following him. Uh, but I still hope it would be helpful to you. I, I want to give you a heads up. On other weeks, we tend to try to be more attentive to the questions you might be asking of this text. But this week, it's the Billy Show. Uh, so... Three points I want to make this morning. First thing, we're going to look at the ongoing work of salvation. Second, we're going to look at the work that we can do. And lastly, we're going to look at the light of the gospel. So open your Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So these verses, these these verses capture the ongoing work of salvation. And Paul, he starts off by saying, therefore. In other words, he's saying, in light of everything I have just said in the preceding verses. Everything I've said about living a life worthy of this beautiful story of Jesus. Here are the implications. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This seems a little intense, doesn't it? After last week's sermon, looking at um, the story of Christ, how although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself by becoming an obedient servant, taking on the form of a human, and dying even to death on a cross, this humble and amazing God who went to great lengths to save us. Paul says the response should be fear and trembling. This flies in the face of some popular pictures of Jesus, doesn't it? You know, buddy Jesus, 
the happy-go-lucky Jesus who, who just you know, gives you the thumbs up. You can do it. You know, don't, don't worry about it. I'm just your friend. I'm just your bro. You, know, you might have the t-shirt. Jesus is my bro. He's my homeboy. Some scholars, they will go as far as to try to redefine these words. They will say, this isn't actually fear and trembling. It's more like awe and reverence. Here's the thing. If Paul wanted to say awe and reverence, there's words available to say that. Uh, and it also, it doesn't do a service to the, the picture that we see throughout the scriptures. Whenever anyone gets a glimpse, even just a small glimpse of the presence of God, they fall on their faces in fear. This is the common response to the presence of God. And Paul, I think he is talking about actual fear and actual trembling in response to who Jesus is and what he has done and how we're supposed to live our lives in light of that reality. Why? Why does God incite fear and trembling? It it would be helpful for many of you to know that I know karate. Um, If you're thinking of acting up after the service, just a heads up, I know karate. And clearly from that haircut, I was a trendsetter in my teenage years. Uh, I got a third degree brown belt in karate. I didn't complete the black belt because then I met girls. But um, loved karate and I would spar, you know, I would fight. I I knew how to throw a punch, you know, kick, I can't kick anymore, block. And I was pretty good in my, my weight class. I, I was a pretty good sparring. And, and you could put me among my peers in my weight class, and yeah, I would have awe and, and, and reverence towards them. Like, I would respect them as fighters, but I would dominate them as well. So I knew I would be okay. There was no fear and trembling towards my peers. But if you put me in the ring with, say, I don't know, Bruce Lee, uh, yeah, there would be awe and reverence, right? Because it's Bruce Lee but I would also be afraid. I would be trembling because it's Bruce Lee. Like the dude could kill me with his pinky. I would not be on level ground, as you can tell from the photo. Like this is not a fair match. Um, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, he's giving you the reason why, it is God who works in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. Because of what Jesus has done for us, the holy, perfect creator of the universe works in us. We're not on level ground. We're talking about the creator of the universe, not an equal, not a peer, not our lighthearted buddy. Jesus himself says, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In some respects, God does um, evoke awe and reverence. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, But in the hearts of those who are still imperfect, in the hearts of those who are still broken, he should incite some fear and trembling because although he is a good and compassionate and merciful and loving God, he is also a righteous and perfect and holy God. And an unholy people in the presence of a holy God should have some fear and trembling, especially when they're told that this God dwells within them. So on the one hand, God, just by his nature alone, should incite some fear and trembling. But the very God we ought to fear is the very God we need if we're going to be saved at all. It's quite a predicament. So on the other hand, fear and trembling is the recognition uh, of who we are. It's the recognition of what we're capable of doing 
at our very worst. Because we tend to excel at creating messes and brokenness, at fracturing lives, causing disrepair. And so we also work out our, our salvation in fear and trembling because we recognize that if this God were to abandon us for a moment, we would shipwreck our lives. So when we talk about working out our salvation, though, uh, attempting to grow in our faith, this is the right posture, Paul is saying. This is the posture that we enter into attempting to grow as Christians, fear and trembling. Because salvation is something far beyond us and a God far greater than us doesn't remain on the outside, but he enters into our broken and frail lives. And so our transformation, our becoming a people who love more and look more like Jesus, isn't something taken lightheartedly, but should be entered into with great seriousness. And yet Paul, he's not, um, I don't think the thrust, thrust of this text is about the posture he wants us to take. It's not just about having us fear and tremble. Uh, it's about the action. He says, work out your salvation. We're not simply told to fear and tremble. Uh, he says, Paul says to us, you play a role in the work God is doing in your life. You're called to participate in it. But this is where maybe some of you get a little nervous. Uh, work out our salvation? This sounds a little like works. You know, works can't save us, says the theology police in our midst. Any, any of you? Hands in the air? No? No one? No Protestants. All right, we're okay. We'll keep on going. Um, but you know how it is. Uh, us evangelicals, Protestants, um, we can get a little nervous when people start talking about works. We just don't know what to do with them because we're, by faith we're saved. Uh, we just need to get over that. Can I just say that? We just need to get over that. The Bible over and over and over in the New Testament tells us things that we should do, good things that we should pursue. They don't save us, but they're things that we should pursue nonetheless. They are works that God calls us to participate in. And the Bible talks about this all the time. Uh, Dallas Willard, he's wise on the issue. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. This passage that, Paul, that we're reading by Paul, uh, it's not about how we're saved. Paul is... It's clear on that issue. It is by grace that you've been saved. You couldn't merit it. You couldn't earn it. It is something that Jesus has done for you, and you receive it by faith. But for Paul, grace is also empowering presence. It's also God entering into our lives because of that truth and giving us the ability to have new lives. It was costly for Jesus to give us grace, but free for us. But that grace, it breaks the bonds sin held over our lives as well. It's expected to change us. Uh, the fancy term for this, as Billy would know after paying many, many dollars to Regent College to get a master's in doctrinal theology is sanctification. Fancy word, sanctification. Um, well done, Regent. Thank you. Uh, God begins our salvation. He saves us. And he will bring it to completion. He will, he will transform our entire lives at the day that Christ returns. But between now and then, the ongoing work of salvation in our lives is God entering into our lives and bring about that goodness so that our lives look more like what they will be in the future. Paul says, God is the one who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this. God takes the initiative in, in not only saving us, but giving us new desires and even giving us the ability to act upon those desires. 
That's his work, but our work is to participate in the process. So Billy, I hate to tell you, being a deacon, or even when you become a priest, it is not a mark of arrival. There's no indelible mark. Your ontology is not going to change. If anything, since I've been ordained, I've become more aware of my sinfulness. God's not finished with you. And that's good news for Tina. (laughs) It's good news for all of us, too. Uh, God is not finished with us yet. There might be areas in your life where you feel like you have desires that you just cannot overcome, desires that you cannot change. There might be things you want to accomplish in your life for the sake of following Jesus that you feel like you just cannot do these things. What this passage says is that God is at work in you, changing your desires and giving you the ability to act on those desires. But this is God's work in your life, but you're invited to participate in it. So if God is the one who does this work in our lives and he invites us to participate in it, what does that actually look like? What is the work that we can do. Look at verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Here's what we can do. Do all things all things, not just some things, all things, without grumbling and disputing. Ugh. You know, all things, like everything we do should be done from a posture where we never grumble or dispute with one another. Now, I agree with most of the scholars. This is Paul using throwback words. Uh, they take us back to Israel in the wilderness. I think this is what Paul has in mind when he um, When he says, don't grumble and dispute, he's remembering the time that the people of Israel, after Exodus, were brought into the wilderness and they began grumbling and disputing about God. They grumbled and disputed about Moses. Uh, They doubted whether God was really working among them. They'd seen him work, he brought them into the wilderness, and now they're questioning, where is he? Uh, So the the phrase, grumbling and disputing, uh, it can capture how we can dramatically misread God's economy of salvation. The Israelites, they were so quick to forget in that season um, how God had brought them out of Egypt, how God had delivered them in a profound way, how God had continually sustained them in the wilderness, that it all began with grace, that they didn't do anything to earn God's initiative and redemption. He acted in their lives. He brought them into the wilderness. He provided for them. And they began to say, well, we don't think he's actually present. All they could see in the wilderness was rocks and sand. All they could focus on was the heat on their backs, the desire for anything but manna, you know, the discontent of their location. And so they started to doubt and grumble against God. Is God really with us? Uh, Moses, didn't God just bring us out here to kill us? He might as well have kept us in Egypt. And so they did what any church does when they're frustrated. They formed a committee, uh, the, the, the Back to Egypt Committee, Uh, But this did not go well for Israel. This sort of grumbling and disputing, all it did was produce unfaithfulness in their lives. They didn't live in light of the story of how God had acted in the world on their behalf. If this is what Paul has in mind when he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
What is he actually getting at then? I think it's more than just adopting an optimistic you know, perspective towards life. I mean, on the one hand, yes, it's literal. Like, as, as a community of faith, we should not uh, be defined by grumbling and complaining or having disputes with one another. I, I think we can take it quite literally in that respect. But what Paul is really getting at is that he's calling us to understand our place within God's story. To say it positively, uh, do all things in light of the gospel. Unlike Israel in the desert, uh, we're, not, we're not supposed to misread our location in God's story. We're called to know the story of salvation. Verses 6 through 11 that we looked at last week. We're, we're called to know our place within that story. And we're called to live in light of that story. And we're called to do all things in our lives in light of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And living this way, Paul says, verse 16 takes place as we hold fast to the word of life. This is what we do if we want to join God in the work he's doing in our lives. We hold fast to the word of life. And I don't think it would be wrong to read this as holding fast to the scriptures, holding fast to the word of God. But I think it's clear that to Paul, he means holding fast to the message of the gospel. Holding fast to how that story tells us of God's commitment to us. So the actual work, the actual work that we do to join God in his work of salvation in our lives here and now is doing all things in light of the gospel and constantly holding fast to the gospel. In simple, put it uh, in a simple way. God is asking us to participate in, in his work by remembering what he's done and what he's promised to us, how he has saved us and how he's at work in us. And that we're to live and act and move out of this reality, trusting him and doing what he says and following his direction. That's the work that we can do. Billy, to know the gospel inside out is the supreme task of the minister of any Christian. It has to be the story by which you understand your life. It has to be the story that we understand our lives. That's the story of which we are to hold fast to. And, and to see God's promise to us. That he is with us in all things, no matter what all things may look like. Even when life seems to say to the contrary, God remains good and faithful and committed to us in the midst of all circumstances. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. He knows that the story of the gospel profoundly speaks into all circumstances so that you can do all things without grumbling and disputing. But if we know our place in the story of the gospel, then we know that the gospel always comes to us on its way to somebody else. Which brings us to our last point, the light of the gospel. Paul writes in verse 15, that as we, all, we do all things in light of the gospel, the result is that we become children of God, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Our lives will be noticeably different if we live under the light of the gospel, if we hold fast to the gospel. But have you ever heard people accuse Christians of being hypocrites? Of saying to Christians, you know, you guys don't live up to the, the, the standards that you proclaim. I think Gandhi famously said, I love Jesus. You know, you, you guys just live nothing like him. It's a bad paraphrase, something like that. And you've probably heard people respond, well, yeah, we're hypocrites. We're just forgiven hypocrites. 
On the one hand, there's truth to that. But on the other hand, we should be deeply dissatisfied with that answer. Because what this verse promises us is that if we live in light of the gospel, our lives will actually begin to change. We will begin to look more like Jesus. We'll begin to love more like Jesus. We won't be perfect, but your response should be this. If you think I'm a hypocrite now, you should have seen how hypocritical I was before I was a Christian. You know, like there, there, there should be a trajectory of improvement. That's the promise of this text. God, when he enters into our lives, it, it makes a noticeable change. And our lives begin to take on a different shape because we are children of God. The posture, um, going back to the beginning of this, this, these verses, the posture we take is that of fear and trembling. But the identity by which we live is that of children of God. God is a merciful and compassionate and loving Father to us. To children who fear and tremble in His presence because they know that they're not good children. He calms our shaking knees. He stills our fearful hearts. And he, you always see in the scripture, someone fears, and what does God say? Do not fear. And as children of God, Paul says in, in verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, you shine as lights in the world. You shine as lights in the world. We don't try to shine. This is a passive result. It's a result of the salvation working in our lives, changing our lives. Uh, the reality is that your witness uh, in the world is the product of the gospel working in you and through you. Uh, the source of your shining is not your effort to shine, but your effort to stay connected to Jesus, to cling to him. You are the light bulb. God is the electricity. You don't shine on your own. You're not even called to try to shine. In fact, if you try to shine on your own, you will burn out. You will fizzle away. Or worse, you will eclipse the gospel in attempting to be at the center and shining. I don't care how talented or impressive you are. Jesus is the true light. It's by clinging to him that we begin to shine in a world that desperately wants to see the light and love of God. He's the one who shines. And so we're, we don't shine in our efforts to be like him. We shine by clinging to him, by holding fast to him, by participating in the work that he has for us so that he might shine through us. This is why Paul rejoices in verse 17 about the Philippians' faith. And it's an interesting way he describes it. He says, the sacrificial offering of your faith. He rejoices over the sacrificial offering of their faith. The greatest offering, the greatest thing you can offer to the world is to have a self-abandoning faith in Jesus. To do all things in light of the reality of the gospel and to do everything you can to hold fast to the truth of the gospel in your life. That is your greatest offering to the world because if that is your focus, God will shine through you. He will do the work. Billy, the greatest work that you can accomplish in ministry is not what you can accomplish, but what God can accomplish through you. He will do more than you dare ask or imagine. Your greatest work is to get out of the way. Be on your knees and pray. And hope that he shows up. He will. 
But even if this is the greatest thing you can offer uh, to your family, even if this is the greatest thing you can offer to your community, even if this is the greatest thing to offer to God, your fundamental and greatest identity will never be a deacon or a priest or a church planter or even a, a husband or a father. Your fundamental identity is as a child of God. For all of us. The greatest offering we can make to God is our faith in Him and in His gospel. The greatest thing we can pursue in this world is the story of how Christ died for us and resurrected and changes our lives. And allowing that story to shape and direct every area of our lives and especially our identities. Because so often you are going to want to be anything but a child of God. You want to be your career or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a a mother or a father, there's going to be all these things that compete for your identity, but your greatest identity is that of a child of God. That's what the gospel does for us. When, when this becomes our all, though, when the gospel becomes our all, we will shine like lights in this world that pave the way back to God who's reconciling all things to himself. This is the great work God wants to do in and through us, and this is the great work entrusted to us, holding fast to that message that God might shine through us in a world that desperately wants to know the love of God.